Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Thank you and welcome uh, today to all those that are listening. Today we have Alex Bishop from the Concierge Group. And he has an interesting story to tell in terms of his personal life and his business life. So, Alex, welcome, and let's get into it. Tell us a little bit about your academic uh, career. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Peter. So I went to, went to school in, um, in Hamilton at McMaster, did a science degree with a focus on molecular biology and computer science and um, just barely squeaked through with a, a bachelor of science. Later on, I, uh, I didn't, I did the MBA thing, but my undergrad, I was, uh, I was definitely dealing with some demons and was not, um, was not ready for a life on my own, let alone academia. So McMaster MBA as well. Yeah, yeah, the DeGroote School of Business. Ah, I, d- I did the same thing at McMaster. Oh, nice. Uh, many nice. years ago. Yeah. So they... after uh, university, it was time to go to work. And what are some of your early jobs that you got involved in? Yeah, I was doing, a, I was doing some computer programming throughout university. And actually, my first, very first job after that was it was a sales job, and I was absolutely horrible at it. I went oh for my first thirty sales pitches, and had no clue what I was doing, and frankly was about to quit. And then my my sales manager at the time handed me this this audio book called The Psychology of Selling by a guy named Brian Tracy. And in that book, there, Brian talked about three things. And he talked about people make buying decisions emotionally. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Not logically. I didn't, I didn't get that concept. And the three things that people make buying decisions were on, he said, were how big of a problem someone has, how clear of a solution they feel you can provide for them, and how emotionally invested people are in either not being where they currently are or getting to the solution. So I thought about it and I was like, okay, well, if I can show people that they have a problem, they can't achieve it on their own, but through buying my product or service, they can do that. Well, they should be buying right away. And that those three concepts completely shifted my way of, of communicating, not just from a sales perspective, but just in terms of, uh, later on, it really impacted me from a business perspective and a lot of the things that I even do to this day. So you got out of the sales thing or did you stay in it? No, I got out of that. And what was next? I ended up getting into owning medical clinics completely by accident. I built a software program for electronic, it was electronic medical record software company and the company used this software as a backbone and ended up getting into the clinic business. And so I ended up owning a, a chain of physiotherapy clinics 
with uh, right across, well, I guess not right across the country, from Ontario to BC. And how long did that last and what was next? Yeah, I, I got in that and within 18 months had an offer to exit at a, about a seven-time multiple. And so exited that company and then did a stint on for a Wall Street firm right after that because completely unrelated, just completely hop, hopped from one thing to another and discovered that um, I, I kind of had a gift to be able to educate people who were uh, willing to invest, you know, big chunks of money in, in the company I was working for. So, okay, you're out of that business. And then mm -hmm. was the next step concierge? Yeah, concierge happened right after that. So we were doing, so the company I was working for, the Wall, uh, Wall Street company, moved to another Wall Street company, took them offshore and did, did real estate work, did some, a whole bunch of private capital stuff in oil and natural gas. And, and we ended up being the funding group for the Roger Penske group of companies and the Arnold Palmer group of companies. But I ended up, uh, was looking at probably about half a dozen years ago at the cannabis industry. And I thought this is kind of cool. Maybe it was a little longer than that. And so I started to do some advisory work with, with my, uh, then employer's blessing, M&A advisory work in the cannabis space and discovered that I really liked it and discovered that I liked the fast pace of it. And I liked a lot of the things that were happening in that industry. And um, next thing I knew, the the clients in the cannabis world, even though we were doing M&A work, they started handing us other problems because they liked us and they trusted us. And they said, well, you know, we're running into some issues with the government. Can you help us with some of our government problems? And my answer is no, I don't do that. And then they said, please. And I said, no, we don't do that. And then they said, well, we'll increase your retainer. And I said, okay. So they, they, we started completely by, by accident ended up in having a company that does, business development work that does government relations work or does private capital work and M&A work, and then also government relations. So that's kind of where, what the concierge group is, is we're a, a group of companies that work at this intersection point of what are the business goals, what are the regulatory and political considerations, and what are your capital needs? And so what we do is we provide services in those three areas. We help companies get access to capital. We help them grow their business, and we help solve government problems. Terrific. So you not only do that, but you also action corporate social responsibility. And I want to talk about some of those examples with you and have you give us an outline. So let's start, first of all, with the uh, community of faith in Hamilton. Sure, sure. So... One of the one of the things that I think we're pretty good at is being able to find solutions to tough problems. And one of the the faith groups right across North America and worldwide have been pre-COVID facing issues around their buildings are old, they're having decreasing congregations. Folks just aren't going to church like they were before, and so the revenues are going down, costs are going up. But yet these, these communities want to stay engaged. They want to still be of service. 
So how can they stay in their community and without, um, you know, and, and continue their ministry? Well, the answer is on their own, they probably, a lot of them can't. So what we did is we started approaching churches and saying, hey, you've got a fantastic piece of property here. The problem with your property is it's got a heritage designation on it. So no one wants to buy it because what are you going to do with it? It's a church. It's going to stay as a church. So what we're good at is we're good at communicating to the heritage community and, and a lot of the other groups why this building should be repurposed. And so we approached this, we actually got approached by the, by the faith group in Hamilton and they said, Hey, can you help us stay in our building and, and serve our community? And we looked at it and we thought, you know what, we can put a case together for the heritage committee to remove and lift the heritage designation on the building and keep the church there. And what we can do is we can build on that site, a, a uh, higher density building, which is going to have some affordable or First Nation and First Nations housing and have the rest of it as purpose-built rental. And then we can figure out a way of retenanting the church in either the second or third floor for free. And that's what we did. So we've got a, we've got a plan in front of them where we're going to acquire the church from them, the, the building, put them back in for nothing uh, as, as the tenant on, not on the main floor, but on one of the other floors, and then have the rest of the envelope built where we're going to keep some of the architectural features of the church, but the rest of the thing is going to get built for purpose-built rental, which will have some affordable housing built into it. So it's a win for the community because they get to keep the church there. It's a win for the community because they get to have affordable housing built. It's a win for the community because there's still some structural elements of the church that are maintained. And it's a win for us because we get to create a social good. And along the way, we've got another revenue center for us. So it's like win, 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 win. And that, that's the kind of deals that I like putting together. And how much would do you charge the uh, church as a tenant? We are charging them based on the nature of the deal, a dollar a year. In perpetuity. Yeah. We, well, we've got a we've got a sunset clause that if the if the a couple things happen, then we can terminate it. So if they cease operating, they can't assign the lease to someone else. But yeah, it's, essentially, it's going to be at least thirty years. Well, that's that's certainly fair. So I want to you outline a project that you're looking at doing in uh, Peterborough that you also want to replicate, as I understand, that model across Ontario. Can you talk about uh, that? Yeah. So what I didn't mention in my background is that I kind of blew my life up personally along the way. So um, about 10 years ago, I was drinking myself to death, and I had gigantic issues um, that I was trying to use alcohol to cope with. And so I'm, I'm a, you know, we'll be a 10-year sober guy next year. And so a lot of the work that I've done with First Nations or with other groups has really been based on me having a, a mental health and addictions background. So what, we, what we've done is prior to these centers, we've, we've created funds for uh, opioid overdose prevention. We did that under Premier Wynn. We expanded it under Premier Ford, the naloxone kits. And 
the centers that that we've got proposed for Peterborough and and for the province as a whole are privately funded, purpose built, urgent care centers for mental health and addictions. So folks who go to ERs between 40 and 60% of all ER visits are mental health or addictions driven. So half, roughly half. And almost none of those, 95% of those are at the threshold for emergencies. So what that means is we're sitting at about half of all ER visits shouldn't be there. And so our model is a way to get folks like me who have mental health and addictions problems. When I was in an acute stage, the only place I could go to for help was an ER. These centers are an alternative. And what they do is you can go into the centers, get brought in by an ambulance. There would be an officer there full time so that the first responder doesn't have to stay and, and hang out at the hospital indefinitely. And there's, there's specialized care, and that's really what's needed. Specialized care would be the, the uh, detox on-site, short-term psychiatric hold facilities, and then community supports. So that if I'm you know, detoxing off booze or whatever it is, I go to these centers and, and I can have everything taken care of for me. The, one of the side benefits, maybe not the best thing about it, but one of the side benefits of this place is it's actually cheaper. So it's cheaper for the province to have these centers and it costs the province nothing. It's run still under the, under the OHIP system, but it's completely 100% funded the building by private, private dollars. So there's no cap, capital expense and we're instantly save, seeing cost savings from an operational expense. So it, it, it's again, one of those win, 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 win situations. But to keep those places going how how does that happen where where's the funding to to make it continue yeah so what what we know is that er visits are very 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 expensive and the province is already spending money on them so if you if you've driven by any emergency room in the last doesn't matter how long year two years five years all we see there are ambulances and cop cars just sitting and and parked out front of the emergency rooms. And so that's because those first responders are unable to leave and they're just sitting there and people aren't getting treatment. So what we're doing is we're taking some of the funding that would have been going to eMERGE funding and we shift a a small fraction of it into these centers. So we're getting more people seen in a much faster period of time at a lower cost. So the, the, our, we, we recoup our investment in the centers through a lease with the hospital, with the LIN, the, the local integrated health network, um, or with the government directly. So would you be running those centers or would that be turned over to the community through training? Yeah, it, exactly. So it's, it's more than likely would be a hospital, would be the kind of the anchor tenant. And then they would then have all the different community groups take space in that center. Because th- we know like the communities already have the, the services there. The problem is the, the lack of centralization. And there's not a single intake point except ERs. And ERs, for a lot of reasons, are not the right place. You go into an ER, maybe you get, you get 
overcare. You get the care is supersized there, but then there's no aftercare available. Or if it is, there's not a coordination around it when it comes to mental health and addictions. So what would it cost to set one of these up? Well, it, it kind of depends on what the need is of the community. So, I mean, the one that um, my other partners built in Windsor was about 40,000 square feet. It was about, you know, $10 million investment total. Um, and so it just it, we can sit in that range, but we have the wherewithal from private financing to build a series of, we're proposing three to up to 10 that we build in Ontario, which I think the need, according to the minister, Minister Tibolo, was somewhere around 15. So would these be rural or mainly GTA? Yeah, so that's a good question. The The need, there would probably be a couple in uh, in the GTA, but the areas that have been identified in terms of the need, Peterborough is a big area. There's a couple in the north that are needed. Ottawa is another one. Brantford, Hamilton, Niagara, Tri-City, so Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge would need one. London needs one. So the majority of them are actually outside of the, the downtown core. Interesting. And as you say, your, your passion is driven by your own personal experience. A hundred percent. I think half the reason why I get asked to do media is because I'm very open about saying I'm an addict. I'm a recovered addict. And I'm a, even though I'm wearing a, a blue shirt right now, I'm, I'm a white collar guy. I'm a, I'm a Bay street guy. I'm not probably what you would think of when you think of people with mental health and addiction problems, but I want to talk about it. I want to see people understand that, that this is, this is something that affects a huge number of, of people right across the country. So a couple of times you mentioned the indigenous community. So obviously you have some interest in pursuing and helping that community. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah. So I think it's incumbent on any of us who have skills or who have a voice to advocate. I think that's just a general thing that I believe in. And so because I've been given a platform and I've been given a ton of privilege in my life, it's my job to reach out and, and to do something with it. Specifically, why First Nations? Well, a lot of folks on in in Indigenous or on on Res have a mental health or addictions problem, and a lot of this has to do with multi generational trauma because of colonial colonialization, because of the residential school system because of po extreme poverty and, and it's not just one thing. I, a lot of my brothers and sisters who are indigenous struggle with the same problems that I struggled with. So I, I've just got a natural kinship to that, that group. And how can you make a difference in that uh, community? Do you yeah. have contacts? Do you yeah. see changes that could be made? A hundred percent. So we've got clients on our private capital side of the company where we do capital raises for First Nations and for Indigenous businesses and for BIPOC, um, like Black-owned businesses and, and other minority-owned businesses for that matter. Um, just this week, I was on a call with 
a Southern Ontario First Nation and a couple of the council members. And they reached out to us initially because they heard of, hey, you're going to bring this this mental health center to Peterborough. Could you build one for us? And then this conversation kind of snowballed from conversation about a mental health urgent care center into other economic development help. And so I think when people realize that you're coming from a place of trying to be of service, they really just want to engage and, and work with you. And so that's kind of the experience I've had. That's terrific. So in terms of people wanting to get more information about you and the concierge group, what's the best website or email to connect and find out more about what you're doing? Yeah, I'm pretty visible on LinkedIn. If you go to LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash in slash government, or they can email me alex.bishop at conciergestrategies.com. Okay, terrific. Well, you've obviously uh, done a lot to give back to community. You are very strong on corporate social responsibility, part of it driven by your personal life, but you are making a difference and you are contributing to change in this country. So... Thank you very much for spending your time this morning. And uh, we appreciate you taking that time. No, thank you. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks so much.